When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, welcome to Screen Talk, NUR's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn. My usual sparring partner, Ann Thompson, is on her way back from the New York Film Festival to her home of Los Angeles. And we're sorry to miss her, but I have a wonderful replacement this week who has been on Screen Talk before and is very well equipped to fill in today. And that's my colleague, David Ehrlich, our chief film critic. And uh, if you can't see David right now, if you're only listening to us, uh, he is currently in red rocket universe based on his zoom background riding around with simon rex so how are things down south <laughs> things are good i'm trying to remember the name of his character in the movie to say that i am joined by uh mikey mikey saber of course mikey how, saber, how do you forget that <laughs> <laughs> um a name chosen you know for him by him uh i things are things are going very well thank you for having me back on uh and leaves large shoes to fill but i will do what I can after a couple months of weary festival going. Yeah, weary festival going, but very productive festival going because we went to Cannes, we went to Telluride. New York obviously is, for those of us with privilege enough to see these movies throughout the year, more of an opportunity to kind of come back to a lot of stuff and see how it's playing. But I think it is fascinating that you don't really know how something's going to land at New York Film Festival on the basis of how it played somewhere else. Like Red Rocket, for example, got shut out of Cannes. It seemed like it went pretty well at New York Film Festival. What's the vibe that you were getting from people who, who were catching up with that one this past week? I mean, it seems effusively positive, And I think that's true of a number of movies that received anywhere from muted to politely enthusiastic responses at Cannes. I mean, there was excitement around Red Rocket, um, which I loved out of Cannes. I know that I wasn't alone, but there is often uh, the inverse phenomenon happens at Cannes that does at every other festival where I think you know, stereotypically, uh, there are movies that premiere at a place like Sundance that er everyone goes uh, bananas for. And then uh, when they open on sea level, the response is a bit more mixed. I think it can. I will never forget as long as I live uh, the year that Certified Copy played there because it, while it won the Best Actress Prize for Juliette Binoche, the response was mixed. And uh, then I saw it at the press screening of the New York Film Festival and was like, this is clearly one of the greatest films I've ever seen in my entire life. And it felt like I was not alone in thinking that. So that can happen with, with Cannes stuff. Um, Red Rocket, you know, had some heat coming off it from, from Cannes, but there was definitely just from what I could gather um, over the, the internet this past week, a lot more enthusiasm for it. I think the same is even more inevitably true for uh, an audience pleasing film like The Worst Person in the World. Um, the French Dispatch seemed to get a warmer response here than it did. Much warmer. In fact, French um, Dispatch is a fascinating example of a movie that could probably have just launched at New York Film Festival, if you think about it. I mean, yeah. Cannes seemed to have bragging rights on that one for the better part of a year, and they probably needed the red carpet appearance of, of various people who came out for that movie. In fact, they needed it so badly they let them skip the press conference. But if you really think about it, I mean, the response at Cannes was kind of mixed. Didn't seem to blow people away at Telluride, but New York seemed like they were much more sort of there for the kind of 
the, the Wes Anderson anthology project that they could embrace as cinephiles who want to, you know, champion a guy like that. So yeah, I, thought, I mean, it's like that movie do you want to honor in terms of its festival birth, the French part or the New Yorker uh, bedrock of, of those stories. Um, yeah. And it may have it may have fared better here, although I think a contingent of the audience after they had that like top layer of expectation peeled back um, and a better understanding of what the movie's strengths would be um, and where it might fall short and like not having as strong of an emotional through line, let's say, as something like the Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, they could engage with it on different levels. But I think even people who weren't so tapped into the minute by minute waves of response to that movie seem to enjoy it more out of New York. So. And another thing that's fascinating about New York is that you can get curatorial context for films that can be totally different from the way they launched. And Hamaguchi's films that are at the festival this year are a great example because he had Drive My well, he had Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy in Berlin, right? And then Drive My Car was at Cannes. Drive My Car was sort of the, the quote unquote bigger movie and it won a prize at Cannes. It was well reviewed, but it's a talky three hour movie that doesn't necessarily break out of the pack when you have some much showier, snazzier filmmaking like Titane or whatever. So it was interesting to have him come to New York Film Festival with two movies that seemed like they really elevated his profile among English language cinephiles. I mean, I was just seeing a lot of enthusiasm, not just about one movie or the other movie, about, but about him as a talent. And I know you, you're a big fan, right? Yeah. And as you're saying, I mean, the New York Film Festival gives a great opportunity to put these things in a different context than some of these movies had when they initially premiered. And you can really feel, you know, especially when it comes to movies as talky as uh, Hamaguchi's, them speaking to each other um, and the way that these projects overlapped in terms of their um, genesis and eventually because of COVID, their production, uh, it, it makes that even more lucid uh, and a really, you know, this is someone who already had a large fan base and despite the length of his movies and how chatty they are, was becoming increasingly popular on the world stage, uh, maybe second among current Japanese filmmakers only to uh, uh, Hirokazu Koreeda. So, um, it's, but to hear those movies speak to each other, it does really give a sense of who he is as an artist, what his preoccupying themes are, um, and just to appreciate the differences. I mean, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy is wonderful. Uh, it is a scrappier, cheaper DIY effort that was totally done on his own terms. Drive My Car is a more austere, longer uh, you know, Murakami adaptation, which comes with its own baggage. Uh, with more money behind it and is the shoe-in for Japan's pick at the Oscars this year. Uh, they're both excellent and they both show different sides of a filmmaker who has some very obviously recurring, um, you know, preoccupations. And we'll see, presumably Drive My Car is a front runner to be the Japanese Oscar submission. It'll be fascinating to see what happens there some sort of new production or distribution company called Side Door. We don't know a lot of details about it. Is releasing it in tandem with Janice Films. So if it is the Japanese submission, that could be a good thing for him on some level. But again, you know, it's a it's a different kind of movie. So it'll be Yeah, but the Janice element guarantees that it's going to be put out on the Criterion Collection probably in 2022, which um, assures a certain kind of destiny for the film um, beyond even the Oscars. Uh, and you know it's it's a it's a big milestone for Hamaguchi. So um, yeah, it's it's really exciting to see those movies together. 
I do think it's probably the prohibitive favorite for Japan's pick and, um, you know, could, I, I wish we lived in a world where it would get the screenplay attention and like it was sort of a automatic pick for best screenplay it can. Um, it's probably unlikely, but depending on what happens with France, it could vie for, uh, for the award itself. For the, well, It's the, a really good point. I think also that it's worth looking at how, how important that conversation is for so many movies because the process through which movies get submitted for international contention is so narrow and exclusionary because each country gets one pick. Sometimes they have their own political reasons for not picking movies, and that shouldn't be the end of the conversation. I mean, we'll see what happens with the French submissions, right? We've got Titane, we've got Happening, which won Venice, and um, Celine Sciamma's film, Petite Maman. So if Titane doesn't get it, it's going to be hard to campaign for that movie in some bigger categories, but I'd be all about, you know, a Vincent Linden uh, supporting actor campaign or screenplay or something. It's just about getting people to think outside of those narrow parameters. I mean, between this and Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Sleep Siyama has sort of become the poster child for, you know, brilliant filmmakers getting screwed by this exclusionary rule. Um, again, you have a movie that could have been a big part of the fall conversation and, and dotted a lot of year end lists with Petit Maman, but now because you know, Neon understandably doesn't have faith that uh, I mean, Neon also has uh, Titan in their quiver, but like they don't have faith that that is going to be the uh, submission for France. It's going to come out in 2022 and I think lose a little bit of momentum, even if it opens into a less cluttered landscape. So, yeah, it's it's a tough break. Um, but who knows what's going to happen with France? I mean, they they screwed Portrait of a Lady on Fire and they yeah. uh, they they felt a blowback for it. And this year they have a, a bigger more interesting brain trust picking that award uh, or that nomination rather, but there is a lot of competition. Do you go with the Palme d'Or winner, which would ordinarily seem like an automatic call, but Titane is one Not of the given. films that yeah. Yeah, has been uh, cooler received in New York. I mean, I think with the hype of anything that was inevitable. And uh, also it's a divisive to, movie. Yeah. I mean, Think about showing that movie to the, the worst stereotype of older Academy voter with conservative sensibilities. Yeah, I mean, not it's an obvious. Not yeah. at all. And uh, now you have Happening, which uh, I haven't seen, but uh, is supposedly wonderful and won Venice and, and seems like um, a more traditional contender in this kind of competition. So it really uh, that, that will be an interesting story to follow. Yeah, there were a couple of snubs this week for international. I know if Anne were, were here, she'd want to talk about this because it's it's such a steady stream of updates that you get. In some cases, you're like, what is that movie? We didn't know this country even had something contention or whatever. And then suddenly it gets nominated. So there'll be some some surprises. You can't take anything for granted, especially with the shortlist. And, you know, there's so many different variables in play. But it was notable, I think, that Narav Lapid, who had this film Ahed's Knee, uh, was very, a film that is very critical of the Israeli military, was not the, the submission. It was Aaron Kralirin's film, the other Israeli film that was at uh, Cannes this past year that got a decent reception, um, but also has some controversy behind it because it's actually a film that is based on a Palestinian novel. So the question is, is it really an Israeli film? 
you know, it's, well, it's, there's going to be conversations about I mean, that. taking that other film out of the equation for a moment, I think Nadav Lapid probably would have felt as if he'd failed with Ahed's knee had Israel <laughs> chosen it to uh, represent the country here. Right, I mean, that is, right. That is but it's cinema. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that what happens though a lot of times is that you just, the only way to kind of get past that is to be so revered that the country can't ignore you. Right. You know, if that movie won the Palme d'Or and it was probably not not ever really in serious. Although, although Ahed's Knee is such a funny example because it's literally about the institutions in Israel that police what right. part is acceptable and like gets into the nitty gritty of the offices yeah. that are controlling that. So uh, it's a really sticky wicket. And I think it's it's sharp enough. Um, and so, you know, spitting angry like you know, so many of his movies are that, you know, I don't think Israel would have ever entered seriously entertained the idea of picking. Right. And then meanwhile, you have um, Pedro Almodovar, who uh, you would think with Parallel Mothers, the closing night of New York Film Festival, that should be an obvious submission for Spain. Instead, they went with this comedy film, the other movie that has Penelope Cruz in it this fall, official competition, Uh, maybe because Pedro is just too famous for them or too obvious or maybe because he's made a movie that actually deals explicitly with the Spanish Civil War and they don't like talking about that. So something I feel happened. Like they didn't, I could be wrong, but I feel like they did not submit official competition. Um, they went with a movie called The Good Boss. Oh, thank you for correcting stars uh, Javier Bardem, so another member of the Penelope Cruz household. Yes. Uh, but, um, oh, no, I'm, glad, I'm glad you caught that because the thing is official competition is the other kind of you know, higher profile Spanish language movie that was going around this fall. So I've had it on the on my mind. Sure. This is something that I wasn't tracking at all. And I don't think any of us really no. were. I mean, so. it's been, I know Guy Lodge from Variety had reviewed it at some festival, uh, but it didn't play as far as I know at any of the ones that we attended. Right. But Javier Bardem, you know, maybe more appealing, the subject matter is more tangible or something like that. Who knows? But uh, but these kinds of updates, I mean, it, it really shows you that unless you pay pay attention to the minutia of this process, it gets it's really easy to kind of dismiss the Oscars as being out of touch or whatever. But the way the system is set up, they're actually at the mercy of all these countries in a way that's, that that forces them to be yeah. very incredible. A lot of damage has been done by their laws by the time the the committees, uh, the Oscar committee itself, exactly. actually gets together to shortlist. So yeah, I, I mean, I've talked to Academy voters who are basically like. You know, the most engaged I can be is waiting for the shortlist and then trying to watch everything on the shortlist. That's that's where I feel like I can do my best work. And of course, the challenge there is like, well, then you're still at the mercy of other, you know, other people and other other forces. So, yeah. Um, it's always interesting to kind of imagine, well, what would you do in that situation? Because we watch movies all year round. So if we could make those shortlists, they would always look very different. And I guess we do make our own shortlists in a way. Well, they had the uh, the save system. I don't know if they're bringing that back. I, th- I remember Anne saying something about them eliminating it, maybe, but where there was some some body that could choose to, you know, save a movie that was not going to make the short list just a, on the merits of its quality. But um, yeah, you can put they can push something in last minute, but you know that's still it's pretty whimsical in terms of how that goes down. Yeah. So. Um, Let's step away from New York Film Festival for a minute, unless you want to talk about Dune a little bit more and how you decide to rewatch it and reconsider your opinion or something. Uh, Somehow I haven't found the time. You know, fascinating. Neither of us were fans of that movie. I mean, you obviously had the ultimate takedown. You had the most extreme reaction. But I think it is 
it is funny to me that Dune was at New York Film Festival and seems to have gone over well enough that nobody's really questioning it because it's hard. I, I, it's really hard to see how that movie gels with the rest of the lineup this year. I mean, yeah, just, or you know, yeah. with the rest of the world. <laughs> so, well, there's that. As, that's all marketing. Also. Yeah, as people see it, I'm really curious. What I mean, obviously, the, the movie's been out uh, abroad, but as more of the people that we know here see it, it'll be interesting to see what the reaction is. I mean, I I don't want to get too much into uh, presuming why or why not people do or do not like certain things. Uh, but I can say that, like, you know, there is a, a wealth of artistry that goes into the making of that movie. Um, there is certainly, you know, from my end, a real desire to want to champion such tactile blockbuster filmmaking in this plastic age we live in. Um, and whatever the movie's faults, I mean, the sense of scale um, and the weight of, of the world that Denis Villeneuve creates, it's, it's undeniable. Um, it's the kind of movie that, you know, if only it offered me anything else, I would have loved to have rally behind. Um, and I am very unsurprised that uh, there have been plenty of people who have jived with the rest of it and had, you know, wanted to champion it. But I think that, like, you know, in a, there are all sorts of cynical reasons you can describe to why a movie like Dune is playing at New York Film Festival in that rarefied air. But film is uh, film is a wide a wide medium, and I think that to ignore the artistic expertise, the, the craft um, that, that's on display in that movie. Um, it's far from the most egregious thing that's ever played in the, the main slate of that festival. And even if it's, I'm not even sure if it's in the main slate this year, but uh, I think it's probably maybe just like a one-off screening. But um, election, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I think that there is, there are uh, cinematic elements there that are worth taking seriously and respecting, even if, uh, even if the movie as a whole didn't work for me. I think I liked it more than The Walk, to be honest with you. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> there weren't any terrible Joseph Gordon-Levitt accents and that kind of thing. Joseph Gordon-Levitt doesn't even show up at all in Dune. Um, and I kept waiting. Uh, you know, everyone's in that movie, so <laughs> uh, Dune is, is certainly a lot longer than The Walk. Uh, you know, had uh, Villeneuve been able to compress that story or the portion of it that he like arbitrarily tells in Dune part one into the span of Philippe Petit's wire walk, I would have been really impressed, but. No so that movie's coming out in a couple of weeks, but this week we've got James Bond. Um, Anne and I talked about it a bit when we did our live event last week. And mostly we were just sort of dwelling on the weirdness of kind of cutting between New York film festival to go see Bond and sort of living in these two worlds and like, coming out of the Bond movie and getting news of a new Sundance CEO and just like thinking about the different scales of, of things happening in the film community all at once. But I think it's worth talking just about what this, the, you know, what this movie represents at, in terms of blockbuster filmmaking right now, when we haven't had like a lot of slam dunk, big screen kind of releases, even if, you know, box office is doing okay. I think it's worth looking at, you know, why does James Bond belong on the big screen? Because there is an ongoing conversation now about, you know, people have spent the past year adapting to at-home viewing. And James Bond is not a movie that provides that, or No Time to Die is not a movie that provides that luxury. You know, you have to go see it in theaters. Eventually, some people will say they're going to wait. But in your estimation, why is this a big screen movie? I mean, it's, it's a loaded question, especially, you know, given this movie's place in the Bond canon and even just in the arc of the Daniel Craig movies. But, you know, we saw, we were lucky enough to see this movie on IMAX, uh, yeah. in which it was partially shot 
for IMAX. Uh, and that's certainly, you know, the other extreme uh, as opposed to watching something on your phone or television. Um, and there was, there was a real collective sense of, of giving yourself over to everything the movie was doing and to really sort of, um, orienting your place in, in regards to where blockbusters are these days, sitting in that theater with other people. I mean, uh, and that's kind of what the movie is about. I and mean, all this entire run of James Bond films have been um, questioning you know, to an increasingly greater extent with every subsequent movie, the role, the need for a James Bond type, both as a archetype um, and also as a cultural figure, um, you know, the subject of blockbuster movies in an increasingly marvelized world. And it's been so interesting to see how the Daniel Craig movies have um, made a, a big concession to the serialized storytelling that's so in vogue with franchise filmmaking right now um, and making actual Bond sequels for the first time. And you cannot really get much out of No Time to Die if you have not seen and remember, and this is the really hard part, remembering what happened in Spectre. I know. Um, as and, soon as they mentioned the word Spectre, I was like, oh, shoot, should I have gone back to that one? Because mm -hmm. I felt a bit adrift in plot for a while there. Yeah, and I, I think that No Time to Die doesn't really deliver the goods as a James Bond movie, but it is a satisfying conclusion to these five James Bond movies and for what it gives to the, I mean, to the discourse, God forbid, of uh, what James Bond represents as both a white man spy who works for the CIA and has a license to kill and also as a, uh, a physical human size, if not sort of immortal, um, counterpoint to the Marvel superheroes. I mean, he is kind of a superhero of his own now, but with one yeah. foot in the real world. But like, yeah, I mean, that's what this movie is is about. And I think what's really gonna be interesting is, is what they do next. Um, yeah, you know, I, I one thing I will say also just about the big screen thing that's fascinating is that it really does, it, it is a big screen movie. To me, it's a big screen movie for reasons you're not prepared for in the sense that seeing Daniel Craig in extreme close-up on an IMAX screen is almost like a spectacle unto itself, right? I mean, it's like they're using his movie stardom to say something emotional about this character in a way that I thought was fascinating. I mean, the best things about the movie, is, as, you, as you've uh, explained, are, are sort of the the interiority of, of, of yeah. the guy, the challenges that he's faced constantly putting his life at risk to the point where he literally has no time to die. Right. And it's like there's a point in early in the movie where it's like he's he's like basically about to get killed, it seems. And he's sort of giving up. He's like, eh, do I really need to do this again? And then finally we get all the spectacle stuff. It almost seems like a repudiation of, of all of that, which I thought yeah. was fascinating. Yeah. And just like again to the big screen of it all. I mean, there's a moment at the end of the unusually long Bond prologue in this movie, uh, yeah. which ends on a note that I think feels more familiar to like a Richard Linklater before movie than it does a typical James Bond movie. And, but seeing that 16 stories tall or eight stories tall, however big the IMAX screen in uh, the upper the real parameters yeah. um, with, with an audience on that scale, it, it melds the emotional sort of limpidness of what's happening in that moment about this, like one guy and the, the girl that he can't bring himself to be with. Uh, with the this blockbuster scale of what you're seeing. And it gives a very different flavor than it would watching a blockbuster on TV where to your mind's eye, you couldn't just be watching before 
before midnight, before uh, whatever, you know, before Bond, whatever this movie would be called. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, maybe that's the next direction when the broccolis finally agree to uh, have some spinoffs. You can have some sort of, uh, you know, the the more intimate Bond stories. The uh, mm-hmm. you, you can do the the Loki version or whatever oh on, on Q or, or one of these characters. That, Stay away, you know, Disney Plus. <laughs> Not interested. Well, uh, you know, I, I talked to Kerry Fukunaga this past week, and he was saying, you know, they pass on everything, including Lego Bond. And that he was giving them credit for that. But he was also like, I kind of want to see Lego Bond, you know. I mean, <laughs> Lego Bond is the exception to the rule because, I mean, just on the strength of Lego Batman, which is a brilliant movie, Lego Bond would be hilarious and also not really dilute the Bond yes. brand, the main line brand. It wouldn't make Bond 26 any less of an event right. than it should be. Right. Um, so the at broccolis. It's a brave <laughs> new world for IP. Um, so let's talk about one other big screen experience, uh, and that is Memoria, which is a world apart from Bond many times over. I know you you haven't seen the movie yet, right? Yet. So I will try not to reveal too much about it, but I do think that it's worth talking about this, the discourse surrounding Memoria, which is something I never thought I would say for an Apichapong <laughs> debacle film, but Neon did something fascinating this week, which uh, in, in a story that we broke, they made this decision to basically do like a traveling road show with the film that will go on indefinitely one week at a time. So not a traditional platform release, really one city at a time and never come out on VOD or anything. So you kind of have to see this movie in theaters. Now, I think the distributor probably expected this to be sort of like, a, ooh, cool, they're doing something really different with this one and was blindsided by the fact that now people really feel like they have a right to have options. And so the idea that you can't just dial up this movie, that you have to, you know, potentially risk your health to go into a movie theater and potentially might not live near a movie theater showing this movie was was a bad thing. And so there was actually significant backlash. And A.O. Scott even ended up writing a piece like right away that went up by the end of the day in response to all of this. So where did, where did you fall on this? I mean, you haven't seen the movie yet. So. No, but... You know, it's funny, where was the uh, the Twitter um, blowback against like Christian Markley dis- the, deciding that the clock was only clock. to play for finite periods of time at museums across the country, even though, you know, once you are fortunate enough to see an hour of it, uh, you should feel like you're missing out on not seeing the other 23. I right. mean, like this, this, it's all about context with these things. Um, if Neon weren't the distributor, if Tilda Swinton maybe weren't in it, uh, it would be this conversation would be, I would imagine, had by a different contingent of people and uh, with different terms. Um, I do, you know, in broad strokes, agree with with just about everything uh, Scott said in the Times about uh, the entitlement that you were speaking to. Um, I think there's also something that film programmer Nellie Killian was was raising on uh, Twitter this week is how these conversations obscure the compensation that is afforded the artists who make them and how the everything all the time, I should be able to go on Netflix and stream everything. I mean, not only is it the A.O. Scott, what he was talking about, about like how when a movie is everywhere, it's kind of nowhere because it mm-hmm. it just goes into the morass of content and people don't watch it. But also, you know, just like concert musicians make or, or you know, recording artists make um, the vast majority of the money these days from concerts, uh, filmmakers are not being paid for you know when the movie comes on netflix and and they get pennies for fractions of fractions of fractions of a penny for a thousand streams 
So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that there are a lot of issues to take into account here. But at the end of the day, you have an artist who I assume that uh, Weir Sathakal was was very involved in this decision. Um, yeah, I mean, and now has to answer for it doing press. I think it, you hit on some some really good points. And I would also add that you know, this is a guy who works in a very limited kind of way as a creative person that affects the way he makes a living. I mean, it's one thing to say like, oh, somebody is owed more money than they're actually getting once this thing goes out into the digital marketplace, but they, you know, have an agent with all these different kinds of opportunities coming their way. This is a guy, he once told me in an interview that he was thinking of quitting the Academy because he didn't want to pay dues every year, which is like a couple hundred bucks or whatever. And, uh, and he's made a movie that is, has more in common with installation art. I think it's beautiful. It's a Colombian Oscar entry and Tilda Swinton is fascinating in it, but the, you know, my, that's still from the film behind me. There's a scene where she's looking out at that empty thing and then she leaves and then you're looking out at it for a while. And the movie is, is filled with these moments like that and, and filled with silence and so forth where you just kind of live in this world. It was shot in Bogota, which is a city because half my family's from there that, that I was very familiar with. And I thought it was very attuned to kind of the, the mis mysterious nature in which it's both cosmopolitan and kind of ancient at the same time. Um, but a Pitchapong's work has often been displayed in exclusive environments. He did a thing for a new museum called Primitive that traveled around a few other places. I didn't hear anybody complaining about that thing. You know, yeah, the Markley I'm... example is great. I mean, when, when there's a great Frank Stella exhibit at the Whitney, is anyone demanding that they deliver those sculptures to your doorstep? I mean, it's just a different context for art. Yeah, and obviously this conversation is so much bigger than this one film. But again, it is one film at a time when every other movie is, if not immediately available, then available uh, three, six, God forbid, eight weeks later. And so I, the idea of, you know, uh, wrinkling, ruffling feathers or, or, you know, what's the expression that I'm searching for at the end of this long week of... Uh, Sounded right. Yeah, whatever, uh, is uh, over, over one special thing that exists in our world. You know, this, this beautiful idea that who knows if it actually exists in perpetuity or if they uh, plan on caving in eventually and releasing it uh, on physical media of some kind or streaming. Um, I don't know. But the idea that we have this little ember of, of something special in the world that at any given time, Tilda Swinton is, uh, you know, on an ox cart driving reels of this movie around the country right. by hand. I mean, like that's, that's a world I want to live in. I think it makes our world a more interesting place. Um, now, if they had made this announcement about Dune, <laughs> it would have been a very different story, yeah. but uh, and, and like, and it will do, yes, it, it won't be able to go to every small town in the country, but no. those small towns probably don't have theaters already. It will go to the places that do, it will do a world of good for those local theaters. It will help them stay in business. I mean, it will, do a, its own tiny share to stem the bleeding. I mean, this, this all sounds like good news to me. Good. I'm glad we found an optimistic note to end on in, in these strange times, but uh, there's much more to come. And next week I'll be back with Anne, but at some point, David, we got to bring you back before the end of the year. Cause you got your work cut out for you, man. A lot of, a lot of more stuff to come around the corner with the, from PTA to West side stories. So Godspeed. And, and sure thanks is. again for being here. My pleasure. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. 
Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.